I'm very critical of both their diets and their hormone status. Welcome to the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You're about to hear from Dr. Robert Whitfield, who is a plastic surgeon specializing in breast explant surgery. Today, we're going to learn why one may need to explant, how they can prepare for the best outcome, and we're going to dive into what testing Dr. Whitfield has performed on explants and his findings. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Robert Whitfield, who is an experienced board-certified plastic surgeon. He completed six years of surgical training at Indiana University Medical Center. He remained at Indiana University Medical Center to complete his plastic surgery residency. And at the completion, he chose to gain additional training in microsurgery and aesthetic surgery by completing a one-year fellowship in Las Vegas, Nevada under Dr. William Zamboni. He's an active member of the American Society for Reconstructive Microsurgery, American Society for Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American Medical Association. Dr. Wiltfield focuses on providing clients with nutritional guidance, nutraceutical advice, personal genetic predisposition screening, minimally invasive and surgical options for treatments all over the body. He's completed over 4,000 breast procedures since 2004, including over 500 implant removals, and we're going to talk about that today. He has the largest series of explant specimens with PCR testing. While serving as the president-elect of the Research Foundation, he gave testimony at the FDA hearings in 2019 regarding breast implant illness. Dr. Whitfield's philosophy statement, choosing to have surgery is a major life choice. Dr. Whitfield has personally been involved in helping make decisions about surgery since 1992 when his sister was diagnosed with breast cancer. Each patient has to know the risks and benefits so they can make an informed decision. With a proper plan and meticulous attention to detail, each patient has the best opportunity for a successful outcome in his hands. Patient safety is incredibly important to him and at the forefront of each surgical decision. After spending so many years training and practicing, he only tries to provide the safest and most appropriate surgical care. Quite the bio. Welcome to the show, Dr. Whitfield. I think I have to somehow get that abbreviated. I was talking fast. (laughs) Well, tell us, um, my listeners are eager to hear what you have to say today. Really tell us why you started taking care of explant patients and do you believe in breast implant illness? So the, the first part of the question is how I got involved with taking care of breast implant illness patients. Well, first, I never knew breast implant illness you know, existed. I revolved my career around oncologic reconstruction. So when I was training after all those long years that you mentioned, nine of them, I worked in an academic institution and basically performed oncologic reconstruction for head and neck cancer, breast, and sarcoma. So I became more of a specialized oncologic reconstructive surgeon, and they did a a small amount of cosmetic surgery, which typically involved the face, breast, body, what was needed. I left my academic post and went to a group private practice in Austin, Texas in 2012. And there I continued mostly to do oncologic breast reconstruction and increased the amount of aesthetic surgery I did mostly as it, it pertained to breast. So breast lifts and breast reduction and the like. One day, a patient who had relocated from uh, Georgia, actually, had called, needed a consultation regarding breast reconstruction, was having not necessarily pain, but wanted to know what options were about revisions or or possibly removal of the reconstruction, which was implant-based. She came to see me, and from time to time, I've had patients over a course of a 10-year oncologic career that needed to have a revision, 
a removal, a takedown. And so there's basically, just like my bio said, my sister had breast cancer. <laughs> I was diagnosed the second week I was in medical school. And so she called me, of course, the expert on all things related to medicine at two weeks of medical school. And so my colleague at that time uh, was teaching us, said, oh, I'll get you, you know, your sister referred. And so we got her taken care of. But, you know, basically for breast cancer patients or any patients, you, you want to treat them more like your family and less like a patient so that it's personal and you don't want to depersonalize the interaction. So I listened to her and, and she just was not happy with this reconstruction anymore. And basically at the conclusion of it, I said, you know, I'm happy to, to remove it for you. And she said, I want you to do an in-block capsulectomy. And so I was... I turned around and said, what the heck is that? <laughs> I said, I, I, think said I, know what is. <laughs> I said, okay. I mean, that's a pathologic term or a term we use in cancer for resections, which is common to me because I had done so many oncologic either reconstructions or I, you know, I had to go to a tumor board like every Wednesday for my entire career. So I said, yeah, I can do it that way. It's, it's not complicated for me to do. It's just an odd request. And then she gave me this fistful of papers about heavy metal testing and toxins. And I was like overwhelmed. Okay. I basically don't know what to do with any of this, but I can do the surgical plan. I'll go through all this. And, you know, one thing led to another. I got her scheduled and she had to be taken care of at a hospital. She had a pre-existing medical condition, her primary doctor and such wanted her taken care of at a hospital, observed overnight. So I took care of her. I did her uh, explant actually in the in the manner she described. But when I did an oncologic explant, my entire career was the same way. I, I took everything out regardless. And I did cultures, a pocket, so that the time of explant, I knew exactly the bacterial situation in the pocket if, in fact, there was a problem. And I used drains on those patients. They typically had heavy layers of scar, lots of bleeding, typically. I mean, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do. But I did that for her. And I saw her at her post-operative visit. We were checking her laboratory results. And lo and behold, she came back with an E. coli infection. I feel after, you know, 10 years of seeing and examining patients and nine years of training, that I was pretty astute about picking up infections. She had no laboratory abnormalities at all. She didn't have... Temperature problems. Uh, she had no external signs of a infection. So this was very bothersome to me. You know, as this poor lady had been walking around with an E. coli infection, it's an infection. If you find for your listeners an infection on a CLIA based lab system in a hospital, that means you have over 100,000 bacteria in the sample. So that's a significant burden for somebody to deal with. And so I put her on the appropriate antibiotic therapy and I saw her and by a month, she was like a totally different person because she'd been carrying around an implant infection, not a quote unquote BII type situation, but I'll, I'll get to that. So this was a implant infection. And so I was like, yeah, that was not good. I, I don't know how to figure her yeah, I always look back and retrospectively, it's like, okay, what would I have did differently in that situation to determine she properly had an infection? MRI, CAT scans, blood work, mammograms. None of that was going to tell you that she had a problem. Can I, this is such a good story, but can I interrupt you? So you taking cultures, was that uncommon? Is that something that you were trained to do? Like, that's how you found the C. coli. You found the E. coli because you, you took cultures. Is that something that was not common practice? Like, could that have been commonly missed otherwise by another surgeon? Yes, this was a cancer patient. And 
I always treat those takedowns or removals the same way as a protocol. You never want an immunosuppressed patient or a cancer patient to have an underlying infection that is not known at the time of an explant or another surgery that you would have to treat because immunosuppressed patients, then this patient wasn't on chemotherapy. I just, I don't want anybody to get confused, but you do that so you know how to treat them after the fact. So if they got sick or decompensated, you then can go back and go, oh, okay. This comes from oncology, transplant surgery. None of these are actually, none of it's novel. And that's in a cancer or transplant setting. So I always treated those two clients the same. Aesthetic and cancer breast clients always were treated the same. And that's why it'll lead to how I've done things over a large number of years. So you don't miss a patient infection. You don't miss a recurrent cancer because you send everything for pathology. So the two things you do when you take it out is you send it for culture and you send it for pathologic examination. So what I do now is I send it for PCR testing and pathologic examination. So I have it stopped doing what I used to do. I'm just doing it better now. So we'll talk about why I do that. The patient went on to do well. She invariably put me on some forum, Facebook group, something. And so I started getting patients who wanted their implants removed. Who wanted this in-block capsulectomy? <laughs> yeah. So she probably said that I said, oh, it's no problem to do that. That's easy enough. And so then I started having cosmetic patients show up unsolicited. I didn't advertise. I didn't know. I wasn't doing anything. It was just all of a they started calling our office and everybody at the office was like, why are these people calling and wanting their implants taken out? So I would see them and try to listen to the story and try to understand, like, is this an implant infection like I had before? Or is this something different? The thing with plastic surgeons is, I mean, it's it can be a little complicated, but if you just listen, then you'll get to the root cause or try to be able to help them get to their root cause. It's not its not for me to determine whether or not you want your implants or not. I don't care. If it'll help you get to the place, you know, then I'll, I'll help you get there. The biggest problem in the long run is, can I get you, as we get further into how this evolves, healthier, feeling better, you know, feeling good about yourself? Those are all different parameters. But so I started doing these explants for BII, right? And then, as I said, I was put on uh, different committees and leadership because I was part of the Aesthetic Society and I was on the ALCL uh, subcommittee. So the ALCL committee is based on anaplastic large cell lymphoma, which is associated with textured implants. Please define what that is. Yeah. Yeah. So textured implants have a rough surface and that surface makes contact. And in the reconstructive patients we used to use them for, they're meant to hold still because they don't have the tissue structures around them because those have been violated by removal of the tissue, say, in a mastectomy. So this would give a woman the best possible size, shape combination relative to her frame and dimensions. And it's been around conceptually for extremely long period of time. You know, early reports came out that they're Textured implants were being associated with this anaplastic large cell lymphoma. And of course, because I was in leadership, I heard about it early. And I said, well, I never use textured implants for anything but cancer cases because that was my indication. That's how I was trained. That's how I was taught. And so I never put them in cosmetic patients. And I didn't do a lot of cosmetic breast implants in my career because of where I worked. I worked at a tertiary medical center because I was an academic surgeon. 
So I wouldn't have seen a lot of people coming for cosmetic breast augmentations. So I didn't have a lot of people. And then when I transitioned to private practice in Austin, Texas in 2012, I didn't do a lot either because I was still doing oncologic surgery. So I don't have a frame of reference of, oh, I've done 5,000 breast augmentations. I've done 5,000 breast reconstructions. So my skew is the other direction. And the majority of those are not done with implants. The majority are done with your tissue, the tummy tuck tissue that's discarded in a tummy tuck. I used to use connected to the blood vessels to transfer it to the chest and using microsurgical technique, revascularize it and make it a breast. So that was my jam when I was growing up in plastic surgery. That's what I did. That almost sounds like this was one of the last questions I was going to ask you, but a better option. Like, is that called a fat transfer? I'm learning here. I don't know a lot about this so that, topic, but... When you're doing reconstruction, though, what I just described is called DIEP free flap. And then once that heals, invariably, there's a little hollowing. There may be a little dimpling. There may be a lack of volume. So then to make that better, you would borrow fat via liposuction and inject that into the spaces needed And that would create a better volumized breast reconstruction, better shape. And that is a fat transfer. So I've done, oh my God, for the better part of from 2005 to 2017, I would do between 100 and 150 fat transfers a year because that was the second or third stage of a breast reconstruction. And so when people on the Facebook groups, my favorite, demonize fat transfer or say it doesn't work. My question would be to you, what is your frame of reference for what doesn't work? Because if you go to my website and look at the fat transfers with reconstruction, they're all exceptional results with just their own tissue and fat transfers. So does that fat last? That's just one thing I've heard. It's a little bit more complex in a breast cancer patient because they're made postmenopausal through chemotherapy many times. And as you know, our hormones are really important to fat metabolism. So when people say fat doesn't last, you have to put an asterisk next to that and say, what is the hormone status of the patient receiving the fat transfer? So if I take a premenopausal woman and I put three or four or 500 cc's of fat or breast after she's had kids or whatever, I call that, and I have to trademark this, my holistic mommy makeover. I don't put an implant in there because she doesn't want an implant. She just wants to have the volume back she lost. So anyway, yes, they work very well. But the things I do with my patients is I'm, I'm very critical of both their diet and their hormone status. So to get people who are really inflamed, like BII clients normally are, we take a lot of care into evaluating you know, that preoperatively, and we can discuss why and how I do that. So yes, BII is real. I testified at the FDA hearings about it. Both societies are aware. They acknowledged it. The FDA knows about it. They just don't understand it. So when you don't understand anything, it's really scary and it's hard for them to like fathom, you know, but I had the big wake up call when I had a lady who examined. I pre-opt. I did their consult. I did all the aspects of their care and had the infection I didn't know about. So I don't take anything for granted when I see somebody with implants, whether it's a hip, knee, breast, your assumption is, are they fine or do they have an implant infection? And you wouldn't know that otherwise if it's not overtly obvious. So don't assume that it's not there just because you can't see it. Can you define for the listeners what breast implant illness is? Like what symptoms might someone have or might did some of your patients have who came to you wanting these 
um, special explant surgeries, like how would someone know that they may need to have their implants removed? And actually, let me add to that question. Like some patients, I have heard, like I've had patients who've had implants who they have them redone every 10 years. I mean, is there, as a surgeon, is that something that you recommend for patients? Like would that reduce any likelihood of breast implant illness? I'm asking too many questions, so let's come back to... (laughs) It's a complicated question. So when you go to my new website, breastimplantillnessexpert.com, there's an assessment tool to help determine if you have breast implant illness. So it'll ask you a series of questions, which are common. Do you suffer from fatigue? Do you suffer from brain fog? Do you have cognitive decline? Do you have anxiety, depression, gut health issues? Do you have joint pain, muscle pain, hair loss? Problems with your menstrual cycle, recurrent BV, all these different things I've seen in my clients over time. And so, once again, this makes it very, very hard for a traditional allopathic plastic surgeon to understand that this is, in fact, a problem. And not only do the plastic surgeons not understand it, the rheumatologists don't understand it, the family doctor doesn't understand it, the OB doesn't understand it. The GI doctor doesn't understand it. So none of them are even thinking about the implants. None of them are asking the patient what she's eating and none of them are even thinking of the implants. Likely. That's just my opinion. I'll put it this way. So we still do the same testing for people that was done when I was a medical student. CRP, sed rate, total blood count, liver function tests, complete metabolic panel. They're all the same. When you really should be their DNA and doing a saliva test. So the company I've partnered with out of Toronto, the DNA company actually uses saliva, but they have a special program using AI to look for what's called indels. So unlike SNPs, which are spelling errors, single nucleotide polymorphisms, this looks for an entire paragraph of missing code. So why does a patient suffer from BII? Well, can you do a test like I just said and get it an idea if your patient has BII? Well, first of all, BII is more of a collection of symptoms than it is to me a diagnosis. So using your DNA, if you were to come to the office, Stephanie, and, and do the test and we go over your results and you had the, say you completely lack the glutathione metabolism pathway. So you just can't metabolize glutathione. Well, that's a pretty big deal. Say you methylate, okay, but not great. You're MTHFR positive, but you also have trouble methylating and that affects your DNA repair. What if you don't have a very active peroxide dismutase 2 enzyme? Well, then your entire pathway for oxidative stress is limited. Okay, I live in Austin. Austin has a tremendous mold problem. How many of my patients do you think have toxic mold exposure superimposed with Preston? Lots. That's how I started learning about this. I was treating, I still am treating many patients with mold toxicity, and some of them also have breast implants, and there was just overlap there, and that's how I kind of have been sent down and, and attracted those patients. So the big thing is, as you know, once you've reached your level or load of oxidative stress, then the cycle's tipped and you can't get back, and then they start having all these symptoms. So the symptoms that I see that I've highlighted already are indicative of just somebody in so much oxidative stress 
that they can no longer manage it. And what doctors are doing are masking the symptoms, which is our standard you know, practice. So I've had people get placed on methotrexate for joint pain. I've had people placed on Plaquenil. People are getting put on steroids. But so I, I basically, you know, sit there as a plastic surgeon, having a functional medicine consultation in the midst of my plastic surgery consultation almost routinely. And I say, look, if you have mechanical symptoms, which are caused from scarring, that's pain, that's nerve sensations. Those are going to go away immediately upon waking up. Those are gone because I'm going to take those away. Now, the symptoms associated with oxidative stress have to be managed differently. So I put people just as a baseline on a gluten-free, dairy-free diet and plant-based protein. We try to manage their circadian rhythms because typically they're all out of whack. So I'll put them on bisglycinate at night and some melatonin extended release. We don't necessarily do a Dutch on everybody, but to check their cortisol levels so that they're peaking right, we can. I do and recommend mycotoxin testing a lot for these clients because it's obvious some of them though they won't be obvious to them and they don't like hearing that their home or their workplace has the problem but environmental toxicity is a huge problem so i try to give them as well-rounded explanation with as much access to the best testing available plus testing that almost nobody has besides us and for anybody with brain fog i must be the only plastic surgeon in the world who does an eg pre-op and at three months so the point is I think we understand it. Can we characterize it perfectly as we uncover more of it? We'll get better at it. I would never spend too much time patting myself on the back. That's stupid. But I certainly have a good feel and flavor for it when I see it. Sure. I want to just comment on the labs real quickly because I've mentioned in past episodes, I have yet to have a patient with breast implant illness who has gone on to have an explant and not feel better. They all have felt better. But they all have also had elevated TGF beta one. That is a marker that I've that I check with biotoxin illness patients, and so far, hundred percent of them. Now, you could have breast implant illness and not have an elevated TGF beta one, in my opinion. So I'm not saying that you have to have an elevation. I'm just pointing out my observation that I've seen that marker to be commonly elevated in these cases when the CEDRA and CRP and all those are just are normal, right? So tell us how important it is to use a surgeon like yourself who specializes in explants. And is this where this N-block encapsulectomy comes in? Kind of share with the audience what that is. So it became more of like, I don't like problems that don't have answers. So as an oncologic reconstructive surgeon, that was my thing. I had to figure out how to solve a defect that normally would cripple or leave someone immobile, or they would ultimately die because something vital was exposed. So it was just being a problem solver. It was fun. My mom used to get me Legos as a kid. I'd spend all day playing with Legos. Problem solving has always been something that I wanted to do. And you know, when we started getting faced with more and more of these cases, I started doing more and more of them. And I was really conservative in the beginning. I wouldn't do lifts. I wouldn't do fat transfers because I was, I didn't know what I didn't know because I hadn't done many of them. I've done over 500 of them now, over 400 with PCR testing for biofilm. And I can reshape and lift a breast that has some moderate tissue. It's better if you have more tissue and get a very, very nice aesthetic result. The M-block capsulectomy, you know, everybody's probably familiar with an Easter egg that has the candy in it. And so you don't want to crack the shell of the Easter egg when you're taking out the implant because maybe the candy in the middle is bad for you or it's leaking silicon gel. So in this instance, you want to take it all out as carefully as possible without disrupting. 
it's much easier if it's above the muscle. But in the majority of the implants placed in the United States after 1996, they're behind the muscle. Why? Because the moratorium on silicon gel prosthesis was in 1996. Connie Chung went on the news and the implants were removed from the market. The, the silicone one. implants. Yeah. The saline implants had to be used. And the thought process was place it behind the muscle partially or completely to help obscure the implant shape or the feel of it. And so that's basically what surgeons in the United States did after or circa 1996 beyond until 2013. Silicone was really reintroduced to the market. Now, it's always more difficult to get something off of ribs. That's a bit more risky. That's why people in my position as plastic surgeons either don't like to do it, don't want to do it, or say it shouldn't be done because it's too risky. So there are certain steps to take to mitigate risk as in any other surgical procedure. Now, I will tell you my background as an oncologic surgeon and an oncologic reconstructive surgeon made most of this a non sequitur. After a period of time and enough of these, to me, it was just like another type of case I had to do or that I was able to do adding to the repertoire. Now, as I've got older and operated since 1996, I'm now decreasing the number of things I do because I just, I don't like doing them all anymore. I like doing the explants because as a service, it's a very complicated, very difficult patient group sometimes to deal with. But when you get them to the other side, it's a very rewarding group of patients that have had the ability to take care of, much like my oncologic patients. I, once again, I told you, I don't, I'm a problem solver and I never like to lose. So I wasn't really interested in being told I couldn't do something that ever happened. So I feel like as we expand our testing capability with DNA testing, we can make more inroads with nutrition and supplements geared to decrease autoimmune systems, autoimmune symptoms and inflammation, then we'll get further of these you know, symptoms. And, and I would encourage people if they've had implants a long period of time beyond, say, eight years to just have a discussion with their plastic surgeon. And if they can't get a positive kind of vibe from that, then certainly I'll do a virtual with them or they'll find somebody who can do a virtual with them to just listen to them and see if there's a need for that. Now, I no longer exchange implants and put new ones in. I either take them out and remove uh, everything and replace with fat, or I take them out and leave them out. So this eggshell, you mentioned this capsule, like does everybody have a hard capsule or does that get harder over time? Like when they're hitting the eight to 10 year mark, whatnot? Yeah, it's variable. It depends on the type of implant. The rougher surfaced implants tend to produce a more thicker capsule, like the textured implants. The smooth ones don't. People who don't have an intense immune response typically don't. It's really variable. But I think basically what you need to know is that you would like to get that capsule removed in block if at all possible, if not a total capsulectomy so that all, all the material is being removed. I test every single sample since February 14th, 2019 with PCR because I was getting aggravated by Cleobase Labs telling me there was nothing there. There was clearly a biofilm so slimy that I could tell in I had a nurse from another state to get taken care of. And she clearly had biofilm like what's worse than an ICU nurse. She's been exposed to Godzilla Bacter basically her entire career. And she's probably got it all over the place. 
And so I went out confidently and I told her husband after the explant, I'm like, she's going to get better. I'm confident this was total, totally infected. So then, of course, when you're overconfident, you get repaid with normal flora on her cleobase lab microbiology cultures. And I was like, well, there's no way. I don't believe that. And so I ended up draining, as I did back then, all my patients and placing her on antibiotics. And she went home with drains in place that drained for like three to four weeks. You know, most of it's inflammatory fluid, but you don't know what you don't know because you, you don't know what's in the pocket. Now I have over 400, you know, PCR tests, predominantly acute bacterium acne, some staph, rarely, if ever, any fungus. I have a triathlete that had fungus, but it made sense because triathletes swim in lakes. They get out and run barefoot. They get punctures in their feet. Spartan racers get acinetobacter because they're digging in mud. I mean, some of the things are just funny, but they all make sense forensically. It's like a Minnesota house. So to a listener, though, so essentially what you're saying is a lot of those organisms are then like getting stuck in the biofilm and the breast implants. Is that what you're saying? So that's internally facing the implant. So the specimen is taking from the internal facing aspect of the capsule against the exterior shell of the implant inside of the Easter egg shell up against the candy. Yeah. So ultimately, biofilm can come from anywhere. If you had a hip patient or a total knee, they got a colonoscopy and they weren't covered with antibiotics and they had a biopsy and their bloodstream got showered with bacteria during the biopsy and it seeded their knee implant, what would happen? They would have a biofilm of their knee implant. None of this is actually rocket science. This is all very old. So if someone has an upper respiratory tract illness, and this happened to me when I was covering for like my group, somebody's patient had an upper respiratory tract illness. They thought it was viral, became bacterial. Basically, she developed cellulitis of her right breast. You know, those patients, you take care of an oncologic patient who develops that is you place them in the hospital, you place them on IV antibiotics. And if they don't resolve in 24 hours, you have to take the implant out, clean out the pocket either wait or place a new implant based on, you know, the clinical setting. All this stuff's been detailed in literature for a long period of time. It's never been that clear in aesthetic patients because obviously it's a much different different scenario. You're going to present to your plastic surgeon. They're going to evaluate you. And of course, they better put you on or have you uh, placed in the hospital on IV antibiotics if you have that situation. But the people who are presenting without any clinical signs of problem, that would be deemed an infection. So it doesn't register to anybody that, you know, what's happening. And the whole thing with autoimmunity and getting it, like, it's just, it becomes complicated for providers who don't know anything about that situation to then grasp and understand, like, okay, So what do I need to do to help this client? And the answer is to take out the implant and remove all this capsule material, hopefully all intact, and then do these other steps. Like in our program, it's very different because we've already introduced the, you know, ways to establish improvement in circadian rhythm and mood and nutrition and supplement support. So I had to learn this through, you know, our functional medicine providers and our functional nutritionists, but it makes a big difference if, in fact, you can get the buy-in on the client side. I want to just go back for a minute here for listeners. So I'm in Iowa. I'm not even sure if you knew that. I was referencing the snow and the ice earlier, so maybe you could deduct my geographic location. But I, to my knowledge, think we only have like one surgeon in the state who really specializes in explanting, like who has a lot of experience in that. And some of my patients have gone that direction. Many of my patients have actually gone out of state. Like they've sought out a surgeon who really specializes in this. So it sounds like you're saying... One of the things that 
a specialist who a specialist in explant surgery should do is absolutely take out the entire capsule. And the second thing is really the test for infection. Am I hearing you right? I mean, is that some, are those some things that a patient should be asking the surgeon in that consult or what else sets your practice aside? Yeah, I think I always want to, when we're completely done with the surgical process, like people want to see what was causing this problem. So I take pictures of their specimens for them at the request and put them in their chart. So that helps them, one, know that I did the surgery in an in-block manner so they can see that. It helps them see the device that's been, quote-unquote, the nidus of this problem. And then if they want the device, they can have the device. If it's not ruptured or leaking, I just give it to them. But I think if you're going to, to do this for folks, you have to be confident that you can do all that for them. And then that brings closure to them. So when I get those samples and send them off, I tell them it's like checking all the boxes, right? I'm going to make sure you don't have an infection or biofilm contamination. I'm going to make sure you don't have cancer, whether it's ALCL, anaplastic large cell lymphoma, or breast cancer, because those things will kill you. I'm all about not being the guy that gets called in two months, two years, or 20 years that missed a cancer or didn't do the right thing. I want the clients to know that all that stuff's going to be behind them. And if they're taking care of a writer in another state, like you're helping them, you need to know that they had biofilm because that's going to help tailor what you do for them. Probably a bit ahead in terms of what I'm trying to show from a data standpoint and then how to implement it is more unique to functional sin or somebody who's interested in biotoxin treatment, things like that, biofilm treatment. You already mentioned you test patients for biotoxins, but do you like test the implants for anything else, like heavy metals or how, like, how would a patient know if they had silicone toxicity? Like That's a different problem. So when I first encountered this, I told you, I don't like to leave things unanswered. So the answer to that question is you have to digest or have the material digested to look for the heavy metals, the capsular material. So you have to send a sample somewhere to do that. Very few labs do it incredibly expensive. So I can't commercially do it and then pass that cost on to the clients because it's too expensive. But the patient could be tested. I mean, I assume the patient, right? If the patient's worried about heavy metals, I mean, not the actual capsule, but like after surgery, you could test the patient themselves. Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Yeah. But for me, it was like, I want to know at that moment what it is in that pocket, because this all goes back to an indictment of this device in this pocket surrounded by this scar. So I get it. I'm trying to take the emotional component and just give you the data. And the data speaks for itself. So if the tissues have the heavy metals there, and I could have established that, that would have been like full closure to that scenario. But we tried to fund a study for it before COVID. We got it funded through my board at that time because I was president and then COVID happened. Nothing beyond has ever really happened because COVID happened. And I don't, I don't know where any of that actually landed because nothing could ever get started. Sure. I want to maybe go in a different direction here for a second. So do uh, asking as far as I, I had posted on Facebook prior to this interview, if anyone had specific questions they wanted me to ask you. And I got just slammed with messages on Instagram, (laughs) Facebook and whatnot. So one of the questions was like, how commonly do implants rupture? And I guess that kind of ties into potentially silicone toxicity. Like, can silicone implants leach into patients' bodies over time? Like, can they develop a silicone toxicity? Well, 
I've taken out a bunch of ruptured leaking implants that were leaking into breast tissue. I mean, that was the whole reason they got took off the market in the early 90s. So when implants were reintroduced and you heard of the whole gummy bear implant deal. So but think of something like Jell-O instead of something like syrup. So you shouldn't, in fact, have any silicone going anywhere because it's all stuck together. If you're talking about the old, old, old devices from the 80s, yes. If you're talking about the newer devices from 2013 on, then the answer should be no. It should just stay there. I had heard of the gummy bear implants, but I didn't realize that those were the new ones You know, after the that, that were reintroduced. Yeah, basically everything sold now in the United States is like that. So, but saline implants are still sold, right? So... Do you were talking a, about silicone. I was, yes, yeah, yeah. What's the difference? I want to go here for because patients and you know ask well ask him what's what in his personal opinion is better, silicone versus saline. But aren't the saline implants still coated with silicone? Yeah. So from an oncologic perspective, when we did reconstructions, silicone was always a superior product because you don't have a thick layer of breast tissue anymore because that was removed by mastectomy. Silicone breast implants were always softer and held the shape better. It felt more natural, if you will. The saline implants felt more tense because as they fill them, they expand and they're more like water balloon effect. So if you had breast tissue over a saline implant, that would feel more natural, but it still would feel more tense than a more malleable silicone gel prosthesis. And out of all the explants you've done, I mean, are have you seen more saline versus silicone? I've seen everything. everything. This country, South America, Europe, textured, smooth, round, shaped, gummy, not gummy, doesn't matter. It sounds like there's not one that's any better than the other, in your opinion. No, I, I think ultimately it will be borne out that through your DNA analysis, it will determine how well you detoxify where you live determines how much environmental detoxification you can handle or toxicity you can handle. And then your work, your diet, your sleep, Stress, your hormones. Yeah, yeah. So how do you help patients heal from illness after? So are you also incorporating functional medicine post-explant? Like it sounds like you're with nutrition and like, are you helping patients detox post-explant? Is there a protocol that you have? Yeah. We joke around here that I'm the functional plastic surgeon because my consults take an hour and they mostly revolve around not how I operate, but what I have you put in your mouth. Basically, once I hear the stories and listen to and examine the patients and establish that, you know, the best course is an explant, you know, to relieve these symptoms from if it's breast implant illness then, you know, we're going to talk a functional medicine approach to their pre-op planning. And that includes, you know, how to get their circadian rhythms, you know, set. So they'll have appropriate rest for both before um, and after surgery. The diet's a huge deal for me because I can't stand variance in outcomes. So I've operated a long time. I feel comfortable in any given situation I can get the outcome. but as you know, with total body inflammation, poor diet, a lot of stressors, that people will stay swollen for many, many, many months. And then it's a combination of like pain and heaviness and irritation leads to more dissatisfaction. And I basically say at this point, I'm a micromanager of everything that goes in the body before and after surgery, because that's the way I get the best recoveries. We put them on a gluten-free, dairy-free diet. If we know specifically there's some other things from DNA testing that we can do, we'll, we'll modulate that. We put them on curated supplements pre-op 
from our store and including a probiotic spore based. And then I have a specific protocol to run prior to surgery. So people do better if you actually get them started in a certain way the night before surgery. So we give them something for nausea. We give them something for inflammation and we give them something for nerve pain. Nerve pain is a big problem in explants. So you got to treat it up front so that it's only in the background. The next day, we have a patient come to the surgery center we're using, bring their medicines, take more gabapentin. Typically, they'll have some Tylenol at the surgery center. We'll do the procedure. Once I've taken out the implants and the in-block technique, I'll inject a a longer-acting local anesthetic called Expro. And so what this medicine does is it helps blocks the nerve the soft tissue and the muscular tissue, as well as the rib surfaces for about five days. So you can make all that pain and discomfort that normally would be experienced right after surgery really minimized so that when they wake up in recovery, they're comfortable. My patients don't need a lot of narcotic after surgery at all. After surgery, we wrap folks in an ACE wrap. They go home. They're encouraged to walk one to two miles a day. I ask them to use an app on their phone or their watch or whatever. That's their exercise pattern. Ice packs, 30 minutes on, 30 minutes off, as much as they can for as long as they can, the first two to four weeks. See them at a week. I talk to them the next day by phone. I see them at a week. Those first two weeks are the difficult ones, right? There's this kind of relief that this has been done, but it's also very kind of disconcerting because there's going to be a big appearance change. There's a lot of psychosocial issues. And that's what led me to do more lifting and fat transfers. But just in this basic situation, you know, it's getting adjusted to this new physical appearance. And then we have a small amount of narcotic. We try to get people week over week doing more activities. So they get the six week park. And then I get people doing more, more strenuous activity, more strenuous exercise. I continue them on supplements, you know, three to six months out and their diet three to six months out at least. And then I have... A bunch of me like, well, when do I stop this diet? Or when do I stop these supplements? Or when do I stop doing this? I'm like, well, do you feel better? They're like, yeah. I remember it's not all the implants, right? We just implemented all these different changes about sleep and mood and, and nutrition and supplementation, exercise patterns. So why would you want to stop any of it? Why would you not just call Stephanie and try to figure out how Stephanie can make it better? Because I'm not the end-all be-all for this, but I certainly programmatically have the my window. I want to go, as we wrap up here, I just have a few more questions. I want to go into what other options patients have, because ultimately I want to ask you, do you still implant or do you only explant now? Well, options, if someone's, if someone is experiencing mechanical symptoms like nerve pain, it can be very debilitating. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you still offer patients breast implants? I mean, is that like a service that you still offer? Yeah. So I don't offer patients implants anymore. I never actually placed a lot of implants. I placed them in the majority of instances for cancer, and that was a small amount. So basically, for a holistic or from a holistic perspective, we feel we're going to offer fat transfers as augmentations. We're going to offer explants with fat transfers. We'll do reductions and lifts, but we won't place any more implants. So I know some patients can really struggle feeling uncomfortable, like with what you said, with body changes that can happen after such surgery, right after they have these implants removed. Now, some of my patients feel so much better. I don't know how they they just kind of hurdle through that quickly because they know they made the right decision and they're happy they did it. But for patients who are struggling with that, I mean, 
what do you recommend other than like therapy? Obviously, there may be some body image um, issues here. Like, what do you recommend to help patients through this change, right? When they're, they're having their implants removed? So we have a variety of tools now. Uh, we've used uh, like health coaching, other programs, support groups with our patients, support from patients within our patients' face groups, I should say, their Facebook groups. They run them themselves. I don't run them. Um, I see patients so frequently, I see them at three-month intervals the first year. So I try not to let anybody get too far gone. Now, if someone needs more counseling, more help, I try to refer them out as quickly as possible if that's been identified. Well, this has been very interesting. So tell us where listeners can find you, kind of where your website is, where you are on social media, like your Facebook groups. Um, Tell us more about that. Right. So you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Robert Whitfield, Facebook, Dr. Robert Whitfield, MD, and TikTok at Dr. Robert Whitfield. Now, I have a new podcast called the Holistic and Scientific Plastic Surgery Podcast. And I have a website specifically devoted to identifying whether or not you could be someone with breast implant illness. It's called the breast implant illness expert.com. We'll post a link to that in the show notes. So tell us last but not leastly, what your absolute top longevity tip may be. So I think as we move forward, we're going to leverage DNA to live longer. And the way we do that is looking at these analyses with artificial intelligence. So for instance, the Fox three gene is the big aging gene. That's something we need to hack and work backwards from with dietary changes and nutraceuticals. Good answer. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and really enlightening our listeners on breast implant illness and just giving us guidance to help our patients on their healing journey. So thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, that was super interesting. He is a super smart guy. Definitely someone I'd want to consider having for my surgeon if I needed explant surgery. To connect with him further, check out breastimplantillnessexpert.com. Other resources I quickly wanted to share with you that I looked into while preparing for this episode include the documentary Explant on Paramount Plus and the book The Naked Truth About Breast Implants by Susan Kolb. If you want to hear more on this topic, consider listening to episode number 17 with Sarah Felipe on breast implant illness. Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, the course is 50% off. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I do read all the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, and for how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. This podcast is produced by Team Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, wellness is waiting. The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information provided should be considered to be or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult with your personal medical authority.